You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Adam Stetner. He is founder and CEO at Fund Canna. We're going to talk about the world of cannabis and financing and really how do you get money to finance your businesses, to find the capital, to invest in the things that you need to invest in, to grow and scale. You know, this is a challenge for every business when they're looking to expand, you know, finding the funds, finding the capital to invest in, you know, anything from material, equipment, space, like all these things take money and the growth of a company is dependent on that. Obviously, in cannabis, this comes a little more complicated, given the federal status of cannabis and really just the overall kind of approach to cannabis from investors and people that provide capital. It's a little more complicated. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about where we are as an industry, what the options are, uh, and how Fund Canna provides some of those and kind of the niche that they're focused on. I'm excited for this. Financing can be a difficult, <laughs> and, and but a very important topic for a lot of cannabis companies. So with all that, Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So before we dive into what you're doing with Fund Canna now and kind of the world of financing and cannabis, let's get a little background. How did you get into finance? How did you get into cannabis? What's the story? So the quick version of that is uh, born and raised in New York City. And um, and I originally was in the apparel business of all businesses. <laughs> Interesting. But that I learned sales, distribution, manufacturing. But what I also learned unknowingly was a little bit about finance in the sense that everything we manufactured there was factored. And so it was fundamental to how we ran that business. That business ultimately was sold to a a much larger manufacturer. And on my way out, I realized they factored everything too. Mm, Yeah. Well, and just for for the audience, define factoring for us. Uh, Factoring is basically using either a purchase order or some kind of receivable as collateral for an advance on money. So in essence, when you factor a receivable, you take an order or you pledge future sales and the factor pays you today for that and then they at a discount and then they collect the full value. The spread is their margin, but what it does is it provides you immediate funding to operate your business. Uh, then they wait the duration for repayment in order to get their money back plus their margin. Yeah, so say Bob owes me $100,000 and he's supposed to pay me in three months. If I need cash now, I can I can go to somebody that they can factor that and say, Here, here's $90,000 now. I'll take over ownership of that $100,000 payment and I'll collect it in three months when it comes due. But you get the cash now, I get a, I get a fee for doing that. Exactly right. Yeah. 
Excellent. So, so, and this is a pretty common practice in many industries, right? Like a lot of, lot of folks do this, particularly where there's cash flow, you know, challenges based on the industry or the, you know, the way that kind of purchasing works and getting, being able to get supplies, materials, equipment, but actually having to, you know, not being able to get paid for that right away is kind of the challenge for a lot of businesses. It's actually the oldest form of financing. Even before there was such a thing as lending or huh? banks, people would pay for the receivable in order to make a spread on their money, right? How do I make more money with my money? I'll, I'll help so-and-so out. So exactly as you describe, it's been around forever. Yeah. It's interesting too. I find on like a lot for a lot of businesses, it's, it really is competitive as well, because if, if you're not aggressive in, in, um, you know, getting funds so that you can grow and scale quickly, it means someone else might be able to take advantage of some of the sales. Like it actually, it actually becomes a real kind of competitive advantage or a competitive aspect when when companies are looking at competing in the market. Agree. Yeah. yeah. So I couldn't agree more. Ultimately, and I'm going to get to this in a moment. So for and explain how I used it again, uh, yeah. exactly as you're describing, Bruce. So I worked in apparel. That was my introduction to factoring, and I was very I was intrigued by it. And then I went, I worked on Wall Street for a few years as a, a trader for a small firm. And, and I had my Series 7, 55, 63. But what I really enjoyed were the analytics, less the trading and more the understanding of trend lines and the ability to try anyway to predict based on data. Then in 2004, I relocated from New York City to San Diego. And this will all tie together, all relevant. And yep. I, went, I went into lending, uh, but got I, I got into consumer lending, student loans. And the idea there was there was a strong direct-to-consumer business. There's a strong financial aid office business for student loans. But there weren't many companies that were aligning with third parties, creating strategic relationships to service the underserved. And I felt that consolidating student loans, elongating terms, reducing payments, there was a huge opportunity there. Uh, I ended up doing over $14 billion in student wow. loans and with an average uh, loan size of only 30000 So you, you can imagine the sheer quantity. <laughs> That's a lot. Of, yeah, exactly. So I learned a lot there about marketing and sales, but also servicing the borrower. And, and it was a, a, a very fast and furious education, but it worked very well until the financial crisis in 08 hit. And at that point, I was working with very large banks, and I had created many millions in fees for them and had zero defaults. So all I was was a revenue center uh, yeah. with a giant balance sheet because it was all on my balance sheet. And they stopped calling me back. And I went out to lunch thinking I went from basically hero to zero. And as I'm sitting there eating, uh, the restaurant got a delivery. And I wondered if I can't get money after putting 14 and a half billion on my balance sheet, yeah. how is this restaurant borrowing? And so I ended up sitting with the owner of the restaurant for almost three hours. And I decided in that moment, on my way back actually from that lunch, that I was going to pivot out of student loans into commercial funding. And I was going to service another underserved segment, which was small business. Yeah. And, and this was in 2008. And so I started a company to fund small businesses, really 
most anything other than cannabis because cannabis was illegal at the federal mm -hmm. level and I relied on revolving lines from banks. So, and cannabis back in 08 was not what it is today, as you know. And so I started that company and over 14 years, underwrote over a million files, funded over 100,000 small businesses, employed 220 people in two states, and we funded over $3 billion on balance sheet. And then the pandemic hit. And that both of those companies were profitable. But when the pandemic hit, I'm sitting at home. I had to yeah. lay off half my staff. I had sure. over 4,000 active clients in my book at the time. They owed me, in aggregate, over $100 million. Mm -hmm. And all of them were forced closed. And I'm yeah. sitting at home watching the news like everybody else trying to make sense of uh, what was going on. And a news story comes on that cannabis businesses are all open. Yeah. They're deemed essential and they're open. And I, after... Uh, a level, I, I thought it was incredulous, right? So a after a, a little bit of shock, um, <laughs> I started doing research and I realized I know the small business market. I had been in it 14 years and there are 15,000 banks that service traditional small business. The approval rate from banks to small business, non-cannabis, traditional small business is roughly 20 to 25% in a normalized economy. So 15,000 banks with a 20 to 25% approval rate. When I started digging into the cannabis industry, what I realized there were five to 700 banks servicing the space and the approval rate was zero unless there was real estate. And only then usually if that real estate was in a non-cannabis entity. And, yeah. and so I saw the third opportunity to service the underserved, in this case, all underserved by banks. Banks are great at what they do, but they have a very specific box. And, yeah. and so I got into cannabis and I founded Fund Canna because I realized there were very few banks servicing the space. I knew that would normalize at some point, but I also realized if traditional SMBs, small to medium-sized business, had an approval rate of 20%, cannabis was at zero, even when that normalized, there was going to be a tremendous opportunity for me to make an impact and for my team to make an impact on the industry. So I founded Funcana in the fall of 21, and we started funding clients in January of 22. Interesting. And so I guess, where were your first couple of clients? Like what part of the cannabis industry did you find initial kind of interest or attraction? And then who was providing the money? Like how, how did you source the, the capital for these? Yeah, appreciate both of those questions. So I'll start with the second question first, yeah. uh, because when you're starting a business, you have to figure out how you're going to fund it. And so that was one of my first issues. As I called around, I, and more as a test, Bruce, I realized that my suspicion was correct. I had a lot of good, strong bank contacts after doing nearly 20 billion in lending and having a successful track record, and none of them would give me money. Yeah. And so I went to friends, and uh, given my track record, thankfully, I was able to raise $30 million. I raised it, some as equity, some as debt, and we can talk mm -hmm. a little bit about how I feel about each. I think there's a great place in every business for equity and debt. They yeah. just have to be used properly. 
So, uh, so that's what I did. I raised um, the equity and the debt, and, and we got started. All friend money, like I said, and their benefits and advantages to that we can touch on later. But then how do we find clients? Well, in the beginning, it was a little bit of guerrilla marketing in that I just called a, a few friends that I knew had contacts in the industry. They were not deep contacts, but nonetheless, I just wanted some introductions to validate what we were trying to do. And some of those phone calls led to introductions, which ultimately led to our first three fundings. So in, in that first month we operated, we only funded three deals and we only funded them for roughly $100,000. And that was unusual for me. I was used to funding 20 to $25 million a month in my prior business. But nonetheless, I had to really study and learn this industry. The entire supply chain, top to bottom, cultivator to retailer, everything in between, and then the ancillary supply chain. And, uh, and so I spent, really, it started, as I would say, spring, summer, as the pandemic was underway of, of 20. I started looking, um, and by 21, I, summer of 21, fall of 21, I knew I wanted in. By the time we started funding in 22, I had made a lot of phone calls, had a lot of conversations, and had raised that capital. And so it was a little bit easier to roll out given the timeline, right? It all really began as the pandemic got rolling in 20. Yeah. And what are most of the uh, things people are using this capital for? I mean, are this, is this expansion? Is this equipment? Is this uh, materials? Like where, how are people using the money typically? So it runs the gamut, but I would say the most common use, and then I'll talk about some of the, the still common, but just not the majority. The majority usage is to purchase. And the reason I say that, it's fascinating for me as someone that loves data and likes to study trends. What I saw before I ever funded a deal here was cannabis is primarily a COD industry. And there are certainly vendors that provide terms, but the terms never match the revenue cycle. And so for a math-minded person like myself, I think about you lay money out today to buy goods. Let's use a real life example. Maybe you're a manufacturer. You have to buy flour in bulk. Mm -hmm. You are going to spend $200,000 buying flour so that you can manufacture into oil. You pay $200,000 now. From the time you lay the money out to the time you get your revenue, bring the flour in, do your manufacturing, get your lab testing done, et cetera. It might be a four month cycle. Your cash outlay is day zero. Your revenue doesn't come for 160 days, maybe yeah. more. Yeah. So my thinking was, even if terms were offered, they're 15, 30, 45 days. They're never 160 to 200 days. Yeah. So the terms don't really help because ultimately you still have the bill due in full before the revenue hits. So yeah. the original product we launched with was allow Fund Canna to lay out the $200,000. And then if your revenue cycle is, let's say, four or five months, we will give you double that in terms with the idea that we'll create these micropayments. So instead of laying out $200,000, you may make a weekly payment of a couple thousand dollars. Ah, uh, got it. All right. And then over that period of time, you're slowly paying down. Now, when the revenue hits from that tranche, you buy flour, you manufacture, most 
people in cannabis have numerous projects going all at once. It's not as if they buy that flower, they're not doing anything else. Yeah. They yeah. manufacture and they wait. They may buy flour today and three weeks later buy more and five weeks after that buy more. And now all of them are on overlapping four to five month cycles. So all that money is tied up and sitting dead. And that precludes anyone from growing. You might want to take more orders, larger orders, but you can't because your money is tied up until yeah. your revenue cycle completes. So what we do is we lay out all the money we enable them to bring in the materials, begin their manufacturing, get things rolling. And instead of laying out $200,000, they're laying out a few thousand per week as they slowly pay us down with the opportunity to pay us off in full anytime they want. So yeah. we're basically giving them all the controls. We just pay the bill. And then they can basically with the dial of time, they can determine how much or how long they keep this capital. They can keep it to full term. They can pay us off when the revenue hits, or they may have a different project that closes a revenue cycle. And in order to save on the cost of capital, they can pay us even before the revenue for that project hits. So, so that was the project, the product we launched with, and it's the primary use of funds even today. And what we've seen all up and down the supply chain, wherever capital is taken, growth ensues because it, they're locked without it. Every industry has access to capital. It's not always easy. It's not always inexpensive, yeah. uh, but every industry has access. This industry did not have access to capital like this. And so the, I'll give the example. One of the first clients we funded was a crude oil manufacturer, hence why I use the example. And at the time we, we funded him, his monthly revenue was just shy of $400,000. So pretty sizable operation, right? Yeah. Roughly, give or take four to five million annually. Mm -hmm. um, we gave him capital. We've since given him capital 28 additional times. Yeah. He, he has funded millions of dollars with us, but his revenue has grown 500%. Yeah. And it's really, uh, he attributes it to the fact that he was stuck, he was, his words, hamster on a wheel. I would lay money out, then wait. I'd keep running, yeah. wait for the money to come back to me, and then I would just start over again, place yeah. another order as soon as the money came in. What we allowed him to do was to place orders and continue to go out and chase business. When that business came in, he was able to draw again. Yeah. And, and so as a result, his business has grown. And, and so for that reason, that product is the most commonly used. But we've also, we've, we've funded uh, lighting projects. Okay. We've, we've funded a build out of a grow facility, acquisition of additional dispensaries. So the money can be used for most anything. It's just a function of, as I alluded to earlier, using it properly, making sure that whatever you're doing with the capital is driving more revenue. And, and how, I guess, yeah, what are the parameters you look for in terms of when someone comes to you looking for capital, like what are the factors that go into your decision making on if you're going to lend, how much you're going to lend, terms you're going to lend against? Give us a little bit of the of your model for, you know, what makes a good client, a good uh, someone to lend to. So the, the, there are a couple of uh, hard rules. The first is they've got to be legal. 
uh, they have to be licensed and operating legally. Yeah. And and so it uh, seems obvious, but I've got to state it. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> and um, and then they need to be an existing business. So we will not fund. But I don't want to use the term startup here. We will not fund pre-revenue. And the reason we won't fund pre-revenue is it's very hard, as I'm sure you know and your listeners know, it's very hard to predict from a business plan what your revenue is going to be. And therefore, it'd be very hard to service debt or weekly payments. And the last thing that I want to do, Bruce, the last thing Fund Canna will ever do is provide somebody with capital that ends up suffocating them. Uh, The goal of what we're doing here is to help this industry grow and thrive. And if you fund pre-revenue businesses, it's very hard to uh, do that with confidence. So we those are the two hard and fast rules must be legal and you must have revenue. Now, minimally for small files, we're willing to look at just a few months, three to six months of revenue. It's enough for us to at least see what the inflow and outflow of money looks like. And that's why I shied away from saying no startups. I consider a business that's less than a year old to be a startup. So we will fund sub one year old businesses. We just won't fund uh, pre-revenue. And then we what we look for, really, we're going to make sure that the payment cycle can be supported and is affordable and is not detrimental to the business model. So in order to do that, we look at bank statements. Um, a requirement for us is that our clients are banked. We've had only a couple, I can count on one hand, maybe two, three, that weren't banked and we got them a bank account or we facilitated getting them a bank account. But we look at bank statements so that we can look at inflow and outflow of capital. We look at financials, P&L, balance sheet. Sometimes we'll look at assets uh, just to get a sense of, of what's there. Corporate structure so that we know how many owners there are and and where management falls into that. And then, of course, we want to hear the story. What are you looking to do with the capital? But really, that last piece is less for us to judge and more so that we can support the narrative of the operator. Uh, But those things are usually handy. It's very easy for an operator to provide us with. We're not the financials don't need to be audited. We're really just looking to understand what the operator would look at every day and yep. then make sure that based on their ask that the payment associated with the funding we're going to provide is affordable, can be supported by that, that cash flow. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, given the sort of federal status of cannabis, like how does it impact how you loan or kind of the loan process? I mean, is this... Does the federal illegality of cannabis, you know, make this harder or is there additional steps you need to take? How how is this different than other industries? So I would say it the additional steps. Yes, Um, we do have additional steps. We have to file reports and then our banking process is a lot more onerous because of the client base we're servicing. I would tell you, Bruce, uh, it was shocking for me. I'm not in cannabis. I service cannabis. My, I exist to service the cannabis industry. But technically, I'm not a cannabis business. I'm yeah. not licensed in cannabis, and I don't touch the plant. Yeah. But because I operate to service that industry, it was difficult to even get a bank account. That Many of the banks that service cannabis 
they know what to do when they're servicing a plant-touching industry. But they didn't know what to do with a financial services company that was providing money and receiving money from plant-touching businesses. So so just that alone, there's a lot more reporting. We need anti-money laundering policies, KYC policies, uh, BSA policies, and then we also provide what are called suspicious activity reports. Even though there is no suspicious activity, um, it's the oddest thing, but it is almost just an abundance, out of an abundance of caution, better for us to go above and beyond and do anything and everything that we could possibly do to make sure that both ourselves and our clients are protected. And, And so we're not filing those reports, I wanna be very clear, we're not filing those reports against our clients. We're filing the reports about the movement of our capital. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it, a lot of that is pretty typical yes, in, in yes. banking regulations. Yeah, so there is more for us to do because of the industry that we're in. But in terms of once we had the bank account and paid a lot of attorneys a lot of money to make sure that we were doing everything by the book and, and fully compliant, then we got licensed as a lender in in our home state of California. And we also registered in a few other states that required the same. And uh, and then that was that was it. And and now for us, it's become business as usual. Very different from the industry I came from. But uh, but we're comfortably operating now and we enjoy it very much. It's a really a great industry. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, you know, cannabis is evolving. It's been kind of maturing, I guess, to some level, or at least different markets are kind of maturing. I mean, how do you see this playing out? I mean, do you feel like this is kind of a temporary opportunity for you until things kind of legalize and then bigger players will come in? Or do you see that this there's always going to be kind of this need for, uh, you know, a solution like yours in, in cannabis, you know, regardless of where the industry goes? So, um, I would tell you, I am, let me begin by just saying, I'm generally a very anxious person. It's just my nature to be anxious. Um, But I use that anxiety as fuel, not as something that paralyzes me. And the reason I bring that up, uh, so it doesn't seem like it's coming out of left field. When I went into student lending, there were behemoths, Sally Mae, and and every big bank, right, you can think of, they were all in student loans. And and so I had that concern. But what I realized is there's still I go back to that that term I use uh, often, which is underserved. There is still a majority of bank depositors that are underserved when it comes to borrowing. And so my niche is to service the underserved. Now, that is not a knock. It doesn't mean that they're not bankable. These are excellent people with good credit that have needs, but a bank has to do the same amount of work, whether they're providing 15,000, 150,000, 1.5 million or 15 million. And so for them, they choose to focus on the larger yielding assets. And so my niche is smaller. And by smaller, I'll still do files well into the millions, but it's still small for a bank. And so in student loans, you had behemoths. In commercial lending, you had even more behemoths. Every, I was competing against every bank 
But in, again, in reality, they're onerous to work with. They do not move quickly. Their box is inflexible. And they decline 75 to 80% of the people that apply, including those that have deposit accounts with them. And so when I look at where we are in the cycle of cannabis, there's no reason to think that this will be any different. It will continue to be a high-risk industry for banks even once it's federally legal. Uh, yeah. And even if it were not, I have a track record of showing success in highly competitive industries that preceded my entrance into cannabis. I, I don't think, Bruce, that's just me. I think that it's the opportunity. There is room to partner with banks where the partnership makes sense. And I've always partnered with banks in the past. I don't view banks necessarily as a competitor. They're great at what they do, but they leave a, they leave a gap. My job at Fund Canada is to fill that gap. Now, if that gap changes its shape, then we will morph accordingly. But I think once it becomes legal, they will most certainly be more open to banking, large MSOs and public entities. But are they going to lend to a three location dispensary? Uh, probably not, yeah. because they're not lending to a three location restaurateur today. Yeah. And so what kind of um, uh, company should be thinking about using a solution like yours and what do they need to do to kind of get their act together, you know, kind of prepare for being able to kind of use a, a facility like yours and, and, you know, leverage it in their business? So, uh, look, without a doubt, I have bias, but I will tell you as an operator myself, I leverage that. And so when you say what kind of company should be looking at a solution like this, I would say every kind in the sense that Apple borrows money, Google borrows money. They're, they have tons of money on their balance sheet. They still borrow. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's my belief that you know, debt is not a dirty word. We've been taught that debt is bad. Yeah. Debt is bad if you go out and you buy a car you can't afford and you borrow to do it, or you load up your credit card with money that you don't have. Debt is amazing when you use it to fuel your business. And there, there aren't many operators that would disagree with that, although many of us are fearful to borrow uh, because of the cost of capital and the need to pay it back. And we're often feeling, this is where that anxiety comes in, Bruce, we're right. often feeling that you never know. There are only so many things you can control. And, but the reality is debt, when used properly, is the ultimate accelerator. It's the thing that should be used to fuel growth and ongoing operations. And my belief is equity should never be used to fuel growth or ongoing operations. It should be strategic. If equity yeah. is not strategic, it's the most expensive capital there is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I so I would say, the, 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 to answer your question with a little bit more finesse, I think any business that has, is hamstrung by capital right now, meaning they don't have the money to do the things they want to do, but they see a path or a line to growth or, or a way to increase their market share, debt is the solution for that. Yeah, this has been excellent. Adam, if people want to find out more about you, more about Fundcana, what's the best way to get that information? Well, I would certainly encourage people to visit our website. It's fundcana, F-U-N-D-C-A-N-N-A.com. And then if you feel like speaking with us, please, we're 
always here and available. We've got a team of people uh, that can answer questions. There's no obligation. It's not high pressure. Our job is to make sure uh, that we're servicing you. And our phone number is 844-420-FUND, F-U-N-D. It's great. I'll make sure all that information is in the show notes so people can click through and get that. Adam, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Bruce, for having me. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.